don't know me, my name is Logan. I am the assistant director out here. And this morning, I have the privilege of bringing God's word to you. Uh, but before I do that, there's a couple of announcements I would like to give us. Uh, coming up on next week, starting next week, February 12th, if you are looking for a way to get connected to the church, we are offering our Connect class. What this Connect class does is it tells you and connects you to the history of the church and what we've been trying to get accomplished for the past 40 years and where we want to go. If that's something that interests you, sign up online, talk to me after service. We'd be happy to get you connected. Also, coming up on February 18th, that's a Saturday, we are having a family fun day. Sometimes February can give us a little bit of the blues, depending on how much we have to stay indoors, although today looks like a beautiful day outside, but we still want to offer an opportunity for us to get together as a church. So if you have a family and you'd like to join us, we'll have the bounce houses set up. We might have a little bit of food there. Uh, so we'd love to see you there. But let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into God's Word. Dear Heavenly Father, in your word, you demonstrate your incredible character towards us. You show, your consistent, you show yourself consistent between who you are and what you do. I pray as we look at your word that we would take an honest look at ourselves and that we could recognize the inconsistencies in our own lives. I pray that we would be compelled to bring those shortcomings and lay them at your feet. And I pray that we could experience the wholeness of fellowship with you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. As I get older, I become less and less of a uh, TV person. I don't watch TV as much as I used to, uh, but every once in a while, I have to go onto YouTube because, as it turns out, I don't know everything, and I need to uh, learn some things, whether it's fixing the dishwasher, changing strings on a guitar, or what have you. Usually, I'll go to YouTube. And uh, delightfully, one of the annoying things about YouTube is all the commercials that they show you. They range from anything that things you actually would want to see to things that have absolutely no bearing on your life whatsoever. Now, very interestingly, I've seen a group of commercials recently by State Farm, and they are all about a personal price plan. If you've seen this, maybe you can relate to them. Um, some of the ones that they've shown are uh, somebody who enjoys smelling their beard after they've had a good meal. They walk up to their State Farm rep, they start telling them something about themselves to try to get the best deal they can on insurance. One of the other athletes in these commercials admits that he uses bath bombs and proceeds to take five or six out of his coat pocket and drop them in as he's talking to a State Farm rep. There's another person who admits to drawing faces, little mustaches with Sharpies, on people who are sleeping on the plane next to him. All of these ideas are something personal about them that they think will help get them a better deal. And the State Farm rep always says, you don't have to get that personal to get the best deal on the personal plan. Now, I don't know exactly what he says directly after that, because that's usually when the skip button appears and I uh, delightfully get to click it and go on to what I was actually looking to see. But I find it interesting on two levels. First of all, I do kind of agree with the State Farm rep. Depending on the kind of relationship you want to have, the kind of interaction you want to have, depends, indicates how personal you have to get. If you're looking just to get an insurance plan, 
They don't need to know every single detail about your life. If somebody walks up on the street to you and starts asking for your social security number, that's probably a good indication you need to go talk to somebody else. However, if you start moving beyond that and start having friendships, that will be inherently more personal. Most of my friends know something deeper about me than my acquaintances do. But even going further than that, family members tend to know something more personal about us than do our friends. How personal someone knows you, how well someone knows you, is going to indicate the kind of friendship, the kind of relationship you will get to enjoy with them. And I do agree with the um, state rep when he says, you don't need to tell us your personal info. Not everyone needs to know everything about you. Not everyone needs to know everything about me. However, there's a point where I do disagree with him. Somebody has to know those personal sides of us that we don't want to share. Someone has to have that depth, has to go that personal with us. Otherwise, we will never have the deeply satisfying relationships that we long for. And this gets compounded because when we go from just having interactions with each other, it is incredibly more important that the God who created us would know us that personally, that we would be willing to share those personal things with him that we would rather hide in the closet. And this is a quote to help us think about that from Richard Rohr, the author of Breathing Underwater. And he says, when human beings admit to one another the exact nature of their wrongs, we invariably have a human and humanizing encounter that deeply enriches both sides and even changes lives, often forever. It is no longer an exercise to achieve moral purity or to regain God's love. But it is, in fact, a direct encounter with God's love. It is not about punishing one side or the other, but liberating both sides. Listen to what he's saying. If you want to have deeply satisfying relationships, where both people see each other as human. That's what he was talking about, human and humanizing. When I express something deep that's going on in my life, you get to see a human side of me. You get to see a more real side of me than just the facade I put on. When you share something deep with me, I get to look beyond the facade that you put on, and there is a humanizing experience. But that is even more incredibly important when it comes to a fellowship with God. We can try and put on a facade before God, but the reality is that prevents us from seeing the need we have for God. And more importantly, he already knows. And what we're going to learn is that he loves us despite that. John wrote in his uh, first letter, starting in verses 5 through 10, this is the message we have heard from him and we proclaim to you 
John's saying, I didn't make this up. My buddies didn't make this up. We heard this from the source directly, from God himself. And now we're telling it to you. And this is what we heard, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in the darkness, we lie to ourselves and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The very first thing John tells us that we need to know about fellowship with God is something about the character of God. God is inherently consistent within himself. Listen to this again. This is the message which we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I want to tear, take this apart and look at the phrase, God is light. From what I can understand, what I was able to read and what I was able to uh, figure out this week, this phrase has two basic ideas behind it. First, it tells us about something of what God is like, his character. The second thing it tells us is something about what God does, his actions. God is light tells us something about God's character and about what he does. As to his character, one commenter says, it is God's nature to reveal himself as it is the property of light to shine. So when, God, when John says God is light, there's a property of light that inherently shines. If you turn off the light switch, it goes dark. If you turn on the light switch, as long as the electricity is connected and everything's working properly, Light shines. When the, sun goes, when the earth goes around the sun and we can't see the sun, we don't see light. When we start to turn and we start to face the sun, inherently we get light. In the same way, God's character naturally reveals itself. God inherently reveals who he is. And this is what the revelation is. Perfect purity and unutterable majesty. We are to think of God as a personal being, infinite in all his perfections, transcendent, the high and lofty one that inhabits all of eternity, whose name is holy. Morally speaking, God is perfect in purity. For all of history, God has a perfect track record. If you were to study God's behavior, his work in the world, his work before the world began, from beginning to end, which, by the way, I do not recommend doing, it's impossible for us to comprehend everything God's ever done. 
would not recommend trying, but if you could, you would not be able to find even one thing to incriminate God. God has done everything perfectly, purely. And the majesty of God is unutterable. At the end of his gospel, John wrote a little epilogue, and he said, look, everything I've put in here, I've put in here for a reason. But there is so much more that Christ did in these three years than I could ever write about. And in fact, if people were to identify everything from beginning to end, it would take up more books than the world has to offer. And I don't think he's exaggerating there. I don't think he's being facetious or just trying to make a joke. For 2,000 years, the church has been trying to understand something about God. And thousands of books have been written. Pages upon pages that cannot be counted have explored what God is like. And yet, we have not even plumbed the depths of God's majesty. His majesty is unutterable because it is infinite. We cannot comprehend it in its fullness. God is light means that he inherently reveals something about himself. What he reveals is that he is perfect in purity. He is unutterable in majesty. And he is infinite in his perfections. But the phrase also tells us something about what God does. John gives us a couple of ideas of what it looks like in his gospel, what it means when he says God is light. Uh, for the sake of time and for the sake of argument, I've narrowed it down to two. You can find probably six or eight and probably more than that. Uh, remember what I just said, unutterable majesty means the sermon can always be longer. Sometimes it needs to be, but that's a story for a different day. Here's two ideas for us to think about how God acts as the light. First, John tells us God enlightens people. I don't want this to be mystical. I don't want this to be uh, philosophical. I want to break this down into a very tangible way. When John says God shines on someone, he enlightens someone, what he means is that he God gives someone an awareness of who he is. And this is a beautiful thought. Every single good thought you and I have about God is a gift from God. That is God shining his light on us. That is God revealing himself to us. We never argue or reason our way to God properly. We can learn some things about him, but we do not learn the fullness of God. Every good thought I have about God, every good thought you have about God, is God's character sharing something about himself with us. And when God enlightens us, it also means that he makes us aware of our shortcomings. If you've ever had that gut feeling that, <clears throat> I shouldn't have said that, <clears throat> I shouldn't have done that. That is actually God showing us our shortcomings. 
And we'll look at that, what that looks like a little bit later, so I'm going to leave that hanging right there for a moment. Another way that God acts as the light is he gives life. He is the life-giving light. I'm not a botanist, but we've all studied a little bit about how plants need sunlight. If you got enough sunlight, the plants take what they get from the sunlight, convert it into energy, and it allows them to grow and live. In a very similar way, God, by his nurturing care, provides for us so that way we can live. Um, there's a theologian who said, every good and perfect gift we have comes from God. And what happens is, um, whether it's physical needs, yes, if it's food, that is a gift from God. If it's water or something, that is a gift from God. But even more importantly, there is a life-sustaining gift that God gives us for our souls. Our souls need life. And as the light, God delights to share life with our souls. John compliments this idea by saying in him is no darkness at all. If it is true that God is perfectly pure in his character, that he has no impurities whatsoever, then the reverse is also true. In him is no darkness. There is no impurity. John's trying to say the same thing twice. I can say um, God is light, which means there's no darkness in him. I can say there's no darkness in God, so that means he is light. John's saying the same thing to try and give us a picture to grasp onto. And uh, the theologian Thomas Odin puts it this way. God is not torn apart from within. There is a steady congruence, a steady consistency between who God is and what God does. God's actions and disclosures are in no way inconsistent with God's essential goodness. I don't want us to miss this. Between who God is, his character, and what God does, his actions, there is perfect consistency. God never acts out of alignment with who he is innately. All right. We ought to ask ourselves, though, why does John start here why is this important for us to understand fellowship with God? Fellowship is more than just being acquaintances. Fellowship has undertones of unity and peace. When you, fall, when you trace the word fellowship throughout the New Testament, it's usually characterized by there's peace, there's unity, and they care for each other. Okay, with acquaintances, someone who you just meet, there doesn't necessarily have to be a unity or peace. Some acquaintances move from being acquaintances to people we don't see for 10 years. Sometimes that's because there's animosity and not peace. Sometimes life just gets busy and we didn't put priority with those people. But if a friendship moves from acquaintanceship to friendship, then there has to be something that holds the two people together, the two parties together. And that's what this idea of fellowship is. 
there needs to be a peace and there needs to be a unity between those two. And to John's point, when it comes to God, having that fellowship characterized by unity and peace is also absolutely necessary. To be connected to the only one who is, as Odin put it, completely consistent within himself is healthy for our souls. Because God is light, fellowship with God means that God enlightens us. This means that every good thought I have comes from God. Because God is light, he gives life to those who have fellowship with him. The quality of this life that God gives is beyond anything we could experience without him. All right, this is why John starts with this. In order to have fellowship with God, there needs to be a consistency between our character and God's character, what we do and what God does. And John doesn't leave it there because he makes this very, very personal. Yes, it is that deep. In verse 6, he gives us a gut check. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. The idea here is that the inconsistencies within us prevent us from having healthy fellowship with God. If there is no darkness in God, no inconsistencies or moral impurities exist in him, then for us to have fellowship with God, there cannot be inconsistencies within us. If, however, we do have those moral inconsistencies in our soul, then we lose the capacity to be in fellowship with God. Richard Rohr writes this, the ways of living and relating that are honest and sustainable and fair, there are those ways that you can choose to live. And there are also utterly dishonest ways of living and relating to life. This is our real and operative truth, no matter what theologies or theories we believe. Our life situation and our style of relating to others is what we take to the grave. It is who we are more than our theories about this or that. All right. This is what Roar means. We can say all the right words all day long. We can do all the right things, all the right religious things, all the right social things, doesn't matter. We can do them all, we can say them all, without being changed one bit on the inside. We can put a facade, a mask on, and be one person when we're with people, and when we walk away, we can take off the mask and be another person all together. This is a gut check that we have to do to say, when I say I have fellowship with God, is there an inconsistency in my own life? It's not a question for you to look at your spouse and say, does this person have an inconsistency within themselves? Because I can see it quite clearly. 
This is for you and I to look at ourselves and say, do I have this inconsistency? But this isn't the end. John continues, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's the truth John's trying to say to you. God renews us for fellowship with him. As we begin to walk in step with God, as we begin to walk in the light as he is in the light, two things happen. First, we have fellowship with one another, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And second, the blood of Christ forgives our sins. I don't want us to miss this subtle shift. We're going to deal with the first one first and the second one second. Go figure. In the previous verse, John said, if we claim to have fellowship with God, there's a subtle shift, and now he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Time and time again, Scripture reminds us, Christianity is not a solo act. For us to have fellowship with God means that inherently, we are going to have fellowship with the brothers and sisters of God's family. We don't walk through this life alone. We don't just have a relationship with God, say we're good with God, and ignore the people around us. And later, John's going to tell us very clearly, uh, we're not going to study that today, you can look it up, it's chapter 2 or 3, I think. But John says, how can you say you love God if you hate your brother or sister? It is impossible to love someone you cannot see if you cannot love the people you can see. Do you see the inconsistency? If you say you love God, but you hate the people you can see, we deceive ourselves. We cannot love God whom we cannot see if we cannot love the people who we can see. As to the forgiveness of sins, one commentator puts it this way. The blood of Jesus does, in fact, cleanse the conscience and life, and nothing else does. One of the ways humanity throughout the years has tried to erase the sense of inadequacy is to try and fix things on our own. If I were to run into your car in the parking lot, or if I scratch it, you, we've been taught to go up to that person and say, I made a mistake, I'll fix it. And we try to do the same thing with God. If we recognize there's an inconsistency in our own lives, we try different ways to fix it. Sometimes it looks like ignoring the problem. There's a very quippy band that I enjoy, Reliant K, and they wrote a song about this. And one of the lyrics that they come to, the realization, I pray that my problems go away if they're just ignored. But, they say, that's not the way it works. If we ignore our problems, they don't go away. If we ignore the inconsistencies, they don't go away. So then instead of ignoring it, we try to do something about it. We try to replace or distract ourselves from that inadequacy. 
And sometimes this looks like people trying to get the next best job, a bigger house, better car, new friends, um, moving to a new state, encountering a new situation. But regardless of what we try to do differently, what new situation we try to put ourselves in, we will always be the same person in those new situations. Remember what we just read from Richard Rohr? Our life situations and our style of relating to others is the truth we actually take with us to the grave. It is who we are. We do not automatically and magically change and become new people when we encounter new situations. Sooner or later, who we've always been will always make itself clearly known. John's point is, you're not supposed to try and do this. In fact, there is a remedy for both our conscience and our lives that is outside of you. Forgiveness is free to the one being forgiven. The promise in this verse, and we're going to see it much clearly in a little bit, is that God himself forgives our question is, how does God do that? Because there is a deep reality to forgiveness. It always costs something to the one who forgives. If I go out and I smash your car and I say I'm sorry, there's two options you have. One, you could require me to pay for your car and fix it. That would be justice. That would be the right thing to do. If I made the mistake, I should pay for it. But if I go out, total your car, say I'm sorry, and you say, I forgive you, I'm not going to hold you accountable for this. You still have a total car that you have to deal with. Someone has to pay for that car. Now, it might be your insurance that pays for your car, but there's no insurance on our souls. Here's the promise of what God says. There's forgiveness for your sins, and it comes at the price of the blood of his son, Jesus. When Jesus Christ died for our sins, he took everything upon himself. The penalty we had to pay, the debt we incurred, was paid that day when Christ died for our sins. By the blood of Christ, God forgives our sins. As John continues, this is where he makes direct contact with our souls. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Everyone is inherently inconsistent. This is what John's proposition is. If we should say we have not sinned, means I've never done anything wrong. When John says, if we say we have no sin, that means inherently I don't have any inconsistencies. I'm a really good guy, really good person. You know, I'm not really that bad.
John says that's not the way it works. There is inherently an inconsistency between who we are and who we were created to be. There is an inconsistency in our life that is inherent between what we do and what we were created to do. To say we don't have sin means there's nothing inconsistent within me. And by the way, the word that's used there for to deceive ourselves literally means to lead ourselves astray. I've been known to uh, take the scenic route while I drive every once in a while. And one of the scenic routes that I have taken on multiple occasions, although I don't care to admit that, is I have um, been on autopilot and gone 71 north while I'm trying to get to Columbus or Canton, which requires me going south. No matter how many times I take 71 north, I will always land in Cleveland. I will never make it to Columbus. I would lead myself astray if I believed I could take 71 north to get south. Unless you go all the way across the world, but my car would not make it on that tank of gas. Okay. When we say we don't have anything inherently wrong with us, when we say we don't have anything inherently inconsistent in our behavior, we miss the path. We lead ourselves astray from the path that God has planned for us that would lead us to a fulfilling relationship with him. We miss that path. But there's also a slight catch with this. And you may have caught it. If we acknowledge the reality that there's an inconsistency in our lives between who we are and who we were created to be, between what we were created to do and how we currently live, that still leaves us inconsistent. That still leaves us with an inherent flaw that needs to be addressed. And this is where we meet the rubber on the road, where we see the character of God connect with his actions. John gives us this hope that God forgives and cleanses us to renew us for fellowship with him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If the word confess throws you off a little bit, the original word literally means to say the same thing. In confessing something, we are saying what the reality is. We are saying the same thing that matches reality. We don't misconstrue it or hide it. This is humbly acknowledging and admitting to God that we haven't gotten it right. John has clearly said in three times and in three different ways that denying the predicament of our souls doesn't fix the issue. What does alleviate the problem is humbly admitting to God that we are in need of reconciliation. And here's the beautiful thing. It's not on us to earn that forgiveness. It is the character of God being worked out in the actions of God that brings this about. And this is what John said, this is why John says, um, 
if we confess our sins, something we do need to do, he is faithful and just, the character of God. When John says God is faithful, what he means is every promise God makes, he fulfills. There's not a promise God has made that he leaves unfulfilled or is incapable of fulfilling. And as it relates to forgiveness, the Old Testament and New Testament are littered with promises of forgiveness. I've narrowed it down to three because, again, unutterable majesty of God means a sermon could always be longer. I'm not even sure I could pinpoint every single scripture that says God forgives, but I've narrowed it down to three. The first one you can find in the Psalms when he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far God has separated our sins What does the faithful character of God looks like? He separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. If you could calculate the distance between one end of the universe and the other, and if you can comprehend what that even means, then you can begin to, only begin to understand what it means when God says, I have separated your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. Let's think about another idea that we learn in the book of Hebrews. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, the place where the power of the entire universe rests. We learn that we get treated better than what we deserve, the throne of grace. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and that we may find grace and help in our time of need. When we come to God and we confess that there's an inconsistency in our lives, he does not condemn us. He does not disregard us. We find mercy, and we find grace, and we find help. Because that is how God's faithfulness works. And you might say, Logan, I'm still not convinced. I need to hear this directly from the mouth of God. Let me help you with that. Jesus himself says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast off. In the Greek, there's a double negative, which doesn't cancel out the negative. It actually makes it an absolute negative, an absolute negation. There is nothing you could have done. There is nothing that could have been done to you. There's nothing I could have done, nothing that could have been done to me. That if we were to come to Christ, he would cast us off. The faithful promise of God is that if we come to him, he will never cast us off. And the faithfulness of God is met with the righteousness of God. Every commentator that I read this week pointed out the fact that it's very odd that John would put faithfulness next to righteousness. I think the translation may have said just. Same idea. Why is righteousness paired with faithfulness? If we go back to the example that I used uh, a few minutes ago where I smash your car 
and I say, I'm sorry, you have two things you can say. One, okay, you gotta pay, and so I pay. Or two, you pay the cost yourself. Someone has to pay. And righteous, God's righteousness, God's justice says, sin cannot be swept under the rug. Nothing can be swept under the rug because if you try to walk on the rug, it hurts. Trust me, I know. God's justice says, I cannot let this go. I cannot sweep it away. Something, someone has to pay. The faithfulness of God says, God himself pays that cost. And he does so through Jesus Christ. We confess our sins, our inconsistencies, to God for forgiveness and cleansing. And his faithful and righteous promise is, he forgives us because he pays it himself. But going back to a point we looked at earlier, we don't have to do this alone. Remember what we read from Richard Rohr at the beginning. We human beings admit to one another the exact nature of our wrongs. If we will do this, we will have a human and humanizing experience that deeply enriches both sides and changes lives often forever. We have the ability as brothers and sisters to walk through the inconsistencies we face together. Let me give you a picture of what this looks like. A couple of years ago, I went on a mission trip uh, with our high school program at the Columbia Station campus. Um, near the end of the week, we had everyone sitting in two rows. And everyone got the same piece of paper with the same checklist, and everyone was given a pen. They did not sign their names. This was completely anonymous. And it was called Stand Up for Your Brother or Sister. And on these, uh, in these checklists, it said, I have dealt with X. I have done Y. Z has been done to me. They would check it, check it, check it, whatever was applicable for themselves. All the papers were collected in the two rows, and then those papers were flipped so that way no one accidentally got their own. And what would happen is someone, one of the leaders, stood up and started reading down the list. And if the paper you had in front of you had that list checked off, you would stand up saying, someone one of our brothers or sisters is dealing with this right now. Every question had a large percentage of people stand up. People who thought they were dealing with depression alone got to see they were not alone. People who were dealing with suicidal thoughts got to see they weren't alone. There were brothers and sisters who were going through the same thing. And afterwards, they had them split up guys and gals to go talk on their own. And in those moments, people were able to connect in such a real way. And what happened was, some people had already gone through the process and been healed from something that they got to walk someone else through in that moment. And while that person was being walked through, they had some insight for someone else who needed some and in the midst of that humanizing experience, brothers and sisters got to come together and help each other 
say, you are loved by God. They got to see they were not alone, and they didn't have to do it alone. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. This means we have the ability to talk with our brothers and sisters about what's going on. All right, going back to the State Farm commercial we talked about at the beginning, you don't have to tell everyone everything. Not everyone knows everything about me. Not everyone has to know everything about you. But what John is saying is that we can't do it alone. Someone has to know something about you. Someone has to be that personal with you. And you have to be that personal, that deep with someone else. I want to give us a couple of thoughts on how this might look. First of all, a healthy place to do this is in life groups. Um, there are some uncomfortable things that we might want to talk with because we need help. Sunday morning might be a little bit of an intimidating place to do that, so a life group is a great place to do that. That's where you get to live life together. That's where you get to deal with things together. Okay. But I need some commitment from us all. If someone comes to us and tells us something about what's going on, we do not share it with others. The quickest, I, let me give you some advice. If you want to kill trust, this is how you do it. The quickest way to kill trust is to take something that has been said to you in confidence and to share it with someone else. As soon as that person hears it, they will cease to share anything with you. They will cease to share anything with me. We have to be the church, the kind of church that keeps things in confidence if they are given to us in confidence. The second thing is, if somebody comes to us and tells us something about what they've done or what they're going through, we cannot condemn them. That is not what Christ wants. What we need to do in those moments is to remind them of the consistent character of God, which is faithful and just. When somebody says, I'm struggling with this, we get to say, remember, the Lord, the Lord God. He is merciful and he is gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he is faithful and just. He forgives our sins. That is what people need reminded of when they come to us. All right. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard Katie give us three ideas. I can't, meaning I'm incapable of doing this myself. God can, meaning God is able to do what I cannot. And three, I will trust God. Last week she told us, about taking a serious look at ourselves, that moral inventory of here's what I've done and here's where I've been. This week, I am asking us to do three things. We need to admit to God, to ourselves, and to another what we are dealing with. If we confess our sins, is the first step. Okay. 
But we also need to be ready, entirely ready for God to remove all of these defects of character. It's one thing to acknowledge something's wrong. It is another thing to acknowledge that we need to change and to actually want to change. So if we confess, we need to be ready for God to change us. And then we need to humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's enjoy the fellowship that God has created us for, both with him and with each, with each other. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, how great is the faithfulness that you have shown us. How great is your righteousness. How great is your love which you have poured out on us by calling us back to yourself again and again. I pray that we could remember your consistent character in a new way that gently reminds us you have something better for us. I pray that we could humbly and fearlessly bring our inconsistencies to you. I pray that as we confess our shortcomings, you would remind us that in your faithfulness and in your righteousness, you delight to reconcile us to yourself. And I pray that as we continue to work through this together, that we could be a church that walks in the light just as you are in the light. And I pray that we would have a healthy fellowship with one another and that in all things, Christ would be glorified. Would you please help us, I pray. We ask these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.